All right, we are back. It's no apologies on Beck, your after hours oasis of sanity. I'm your host, Rick Becker. Lori is not in the house tonight. We have with us special guest, Dustin Garolo, Managing Director for the North Dakota Watchdog Network. Dustin, thank you for being back. Sure thing, absolutely, it's been There's, a while. Yeah, it has been a while and so much to talk about. Uh, I've wanted to have you on for several weeks now, but uh, anyway, we've finally done it. And uh, let's dive right in. We, so we have Dustin for the next three segments, the remainder of the show. A lot of good topics. The first one, uh, Bismarck Special Assessment Task Force. Uh, tell our viewers all about it. You gotta start from square one. Uh, um, and, and what some of the outcomes have been of this task force. Yeah, so it, in 2017, you know, we're, we're already going five years in this process, which is commentary on how government works. But, <laughs> you know, when you're trying to drastically reform a tax system, it takes a long time because it took 100 years to create the problem. You know, if we can fix it in under 10, that's pretty good, right? Sure. Uh, you know, so, so uh, the former mayor, Mike Seminary, appointed some of us to uh, a special assessment task force following the infrastructure task force that looked at the various projects around the city that needed to be done over the next 10 years or so. And, uh, you know, we've been looking at uh, whether the current way that, that Bismarck uses a special assessment process, both on new development, what we call greenfield development, where you take raw ag land and turn it into a new subdivision and uh, the way that the city uses special assessments to pay for uh, maintenance of existing streets in the you know, old parts of town uh, where you have varying uh, situations of, of quality and, and degradation on the, the pavement and uh, you know People always complain about special assessments, probably even more so than property taxes themselves, because when you get a special assessment, it's usually a very large dollar amount. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, it only hap you, you get assessed this every eight to 15 years maybe, but it's a $8,000 bill out of the blue, and you, you pay it off annually, but there's a sticker shock factor to the way it's done. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, ambiguity to the process that's used by the city, even though it's well established in state and, and local laws. Uh, there's just a lot of mystery around it, as there is with a lot of uh, governmental things. And our task force over the last five years has now been looking at how we got to the position of using it this way to pay for maintenance, why we don't use property tax to fix our streets. You know, you ask the average person on the street uh, if they know how the streets get paid for, and most people say property tax. Mm -hmm. In Bismarck, zero. Zero dollars go to, prop to, to streets from your property tax. The only property tax dollars that in, indirectly go to streets go to the engineering department. And so there's this kind of perception that property taxes pay for streets, but yet we're using special assessments to pay for them. And, and there's a lot of, it gets into the, the nuance of, of how things have manifested over the years. And so we have tried to develop a way that we can measure use of streets to try to levy a fee on households that somehow measures their actual use. And, you know, as conservatives, we always want to uh, derive our revenue from actual use. Well, 
when it comes to using the streets, it's very difficult to determine who's actually using them and benefiting the most because uh, we don't have a real good way to track people's car mm -hmm. movements and and tell the federal government overreaches and forces us to put little black boxes into our cars and track our every mo movement uh, <laughs> and taxes on the mile. Uh, we're not going to have a good way to actually do that. And you know, maybe you know, obviously that's going to be a big fight in the next few years uh, when it comes to to the federal government. But uh, you know, until we have that real good way to to measure use. Uh, we are kind of stuck in the approach of adopting, at, at least this is what we're looking at right now with the Special Assessment Task Force, adopting sort of an insurance model where we try to minimize the impact to everybody. We, instead of using a every several years assessment, go with a monthly fee uh, that, that goes into a pool that then is used to maintain the streets and relatively the same schedule as is used now with special assessments, but instead of it being levied as a basically lien against your property, it's just a monthly fee that you can budget for. And, and the theory is that if it's monthly and it's low, uh, that it'll be easier for people to, to handle, it'll be easier to budget for, and it will allow for fixed income residents to stay in their homes longer. Sure. So. And, and this is uh, this is relatively n new to me, but uh, so I don't have a strong feeling in favor or against it. But one of the things that comes to my mind is is the pitfalls of so many government programs. If you take away the direct effect, mm -hmm. this is a street I live on. Here's what they're doing. It's costing me a bunch of money. When it's just sort of spread throughout, it's hard to try and find accountability or understand that you're getting a bang for your buck. Certainly the ability to, I mean, because now if there's going to be a special assessment, you could get enough of your neighbors to say, we don't want to do that, right? Yes, the current process has a protest process. And, and uh, that's one of the things that has actually led to this task force being created is that there's so many areas of town that protest out of paying for the special assessments to get their streets redone, that by the time the street actually gets done, uh, there's, there's more damage than there otherwise would be, and the city has to basically rip out the street and start over, which then actually increases the cost, because if, if there would have been a, a maintenance process other than just filling potholes uh, to maintain that street, it, there may have been, in a lot of cases, uh, the ability to extend that life of that existing street. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people, I think, protest out thinking they're saving money, but as with everything, when you kick the can down the road, you're, into, you're gonna pay more at the, uh, when you right. put things off. And, and so we, th there, there is that, that issue, and that will be one of the big uh, stumbling blocks to selling it to the public. But I think that overall, people realize that you have to maintain what you have in order sure. to go forward. But let me ask one more thing. What about people that are looking right now at an $8,000 bill that's assessed to their property? And now they're going to start paying a fee. Does the plan take away their special assessments and put it in the like a unified pool? The, the way that we're going to do it is, there, like I mentioned at the beginning, there's greenfield specials, which are brand new lots that you buy a brand new house on. 
those specials people will still have to pay for because those are not related mm -hmm. to the maintenance. Sure. But when it comes to existing maintenance specials, under the plan that we've been debating, uh, part of the fee would actually be to pay down the existing maintenance specials for those okay. who have existing balances so that uh, people don't have to pay double in all situations. There's right. going to be some people that, you know, they just paid theirs off and now they're going to pay in. Uh, but, you know, that's, there's always going to be kind of a painful transition period. But the idea is that it, hopefully this new system that we're creating will be more fair going mm -hmm. forward and end up saving everybody money in the long run. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Uh, Dustin, we are going to hold you over. Next segment, uh, more interesting topics. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. All right, we are back once again, and our guest, special guest, Dustin Garillo, uh, Managing Director of the North Dakota Watchdog Network, back. We had a great discussion on this special assessment task force and handling things differently. I, I find it very interesting. I'm sure many of our viewers do. Uh, next up, you uh, have, I would say, uh, a somewhat passionate attitude about a constitutional measure that would make it more difficult to change our constitution that um, I believe is in the signature gathering phase? Yes, uh, the, there's a group uh, led by the North Dakota Chamber that is collecting signatures currently uh, to place a measure on the ballot that would do two things. Uh, it would increase the threshold required for changing the North Dakota Constitution from simple majority to 60%, and then implement what is called a single subject rule on future constitutional measures. And that would apply to both citizen measures and measures that start in the legislature, which is an interesting concept. Uh, it would also require 60% in the chamber, I believe, uh, to put it on the ballot. And uh, basically, there's, there's this notion that initiated measures and constitutional measures are too easy. Uh, and I, I think that the, the folks doing this 60% rule measure are finding out that that's not the case from what I've heard through the rumor mill. But uh, the, my, my passion related to this is the fact that when it comes down to uh, the way that government works in North Dakota and in any state, um, you know, the, the people should have the final say on pretty much everything and should set the rules for the legislature. It, it's my view that uh, because North Dakota is unique in the way that it created the initiated measure process early on in its, in its infancy, that uh, we have a system that is designed to promote citizen accountability by elected officials and that we should maintain that as much as possible. And, and this idea that all of a sudden, because there have been a few measures on the ballot and, and a few of those have passed uh, that, that we don't like, that we need to start changing the rules. And you know, the idea that, that any constitutional measure going forward should require 60% is going to take a lot of things off the table that uh, a lot of us conservatives are, are very much in favor of. Uh, changing, whether it be you know, abolishing the income tax, abolishing property tax, doing all sorts of things that would rein in the legislature or rein in the governor. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the initiated measure process is a stopgap. And you know, my, my opposition over the years has been that uh, 
the, the legislature trying to give the people an opportunity to vote away their, their own power or any uh, special interest group trying to do that uh, is, is eventually going to hinder our ability to actually limit our own government. And while it may seem like a good idea on the surface, years down the road, if it's implemented, uh, we'll definitely regret it. Yeah. So, so here, here's my thing. A couple of, so I'm, I'm mildly in favor of the measure. Well, let me say it somewhat differently. I'm in favor of making it somewhat more difficult to get to change the Constitution. And I know that in current law, and the way it's been for a long time, is that the signature gathering is that, is that stopgap, sort of the, that, that threshold, because it's twice as many signatures to change the Constitution as it is to change the Century mm -hmm. Code, our state law. Uh, and, and I think that that's reasonable, but what we're finding, really, is if you have uh, half a million dollars, you, you'll get the signatures. That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. You'll have a firm, they'll go out, they will get the signatures. So what it comes down to is to put a measure on the ballot with half a million dollars, it'll get there. So there, for, for people with money, there is no sort of limiting threshold to try and get across. It's just a half million bucks. For people without money that are that are citizens and trying to get it, that is that's difficult. That's a thirty-five thousand signatures is a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's not the exact number, but you want a little extra. Um, so, shouldn't there be some? W would you feel differently if it was fifty-five percent, right, uh, of the vote required instead of sixty? No, because I think fifty-five percent is too arbitrary. Like it's just grabbing a number. And there was a bill last session regarding school bond elections that would have set different different school districts based on their population at 53% or 55%. And it just n didn't really make any sense. I, I would agree that, you know, if you're going to do something, and I, I suggested this uh, in the last session and in 2019 when the legislature was looking at the 60% rule and, and the House actually voted in favor of it, uh, that, you know, I, I would be in favor of increasing the signature threshold if we had a modernization process for that signature threshold in, in the form of online signatures. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would like to get more citizens involved in the process. I think that increasing the threshold to say 10% of the population and then, require, and then creating a system where people can go onto the Secretary of State's website, read the measure in full, get information from both sides and then, you know, using their driver's license or, or right. whatever form of identification, sign to support it. Because that will allow people to be more informed when they're signing. Mm -hmm. It'll get more people involved. And it actually would take the money out of the process. The, it's my view that with all the ways that the, both the legislature and now that the, the uh, chambers approach, uh, all these approaches to make it more difficult actually increase the amount of money required to do it. Push the, the true grassroots people that don't have money out and ultimately will empower the out-of-state uh, interests that like to dump money into North Dakota. We are a very cheap place to play when it comes Extremely to That's politics. It's one of my concerns. The problem is that, that we don't have the money ourselves in North Dakota. It's the out-of-staters that have the money. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm also not a big fan of Citizens United. Uh, back in 2017, I, I helped put together a, a bill in the legislature that would have 
regulated the amount of money and where money could come from for initiated measures. Uh, basically a one-for-one one rule that says for every dollar out of state, you got to raise a dollar in state. So if you can raise $2 million in the state of North Dakota, you deserve to mm -hmm. get 200, or $2 million from California. Because we both know that it's next to impossible to raise $2 million for a measure in North Dakota. Yes. So if you're that popular, you, you, you should win that lottery. Unfortunately, the, the very same special interest groups that are in favor of increasing the threshold and making it more difficult were the ones that were loudest against doing anything on the campaign finance side of it. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting measure. I think that there are good folks well-intentioned on both sides of it. It's a matter, I guess, of how you feel about the ease in which the Constitution can be changed. Um, I do like your idea about uh, making it easier to vote online. I'm sorry, to s get the signatures online, because at least that's an equating factor between the big money bags folks from out mm -hmm. of state and citizen uh, uh, citizens groups that can then uh, access those same signatures without having to struggle uh, with the money. Um, all right, uh, one minute. I, I want to give you, you've had some interesting comments about the Civil War uh, in the North Dakota GOP. Yeah, it, it's definitely been an interesting thing to watch. I, I've limited my exposure and involvement to it in recent years. Uh, you know, it, it, to me, it, it's interesting that the, the, the folks, there, there's a lot of purging and counter-purging going on, it seems to me. You've got folks that uh, would, would like to uh, push out the establishment in, in, based off of ide ideology, and then you've got the establishment that have, has brought it upon itself to uh, beat them to the punch. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, the counter-purge is, is really uh, in full force right now. And, um, you know, we see this all the time. Uh, you know, I, last time I was on, we talked about the various waves that, that have come into the party. Uh, every few years, there's a new group that thinks that the last groups were not conservative enough or, or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, right now we've, we've got uh, a, a fight going on, and, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that a lot of it comes down to money. Uh, the party's finances are not as good as people think it is. No. And, and uh, uh, you know, you got to have leadership that can raise money or else uh, things uh, start to crumble. Absolutely. All right. Um, very good. Dustin, we're going to come back for a final segment. You've got an announcement, I think. At least it's an announcement to me, folks. We'll be right back. All right. We're back. It's no apologies. You guys made it. Fifth and final segment. Dustin Garrillo, you are going to finish us out. And... Um, it sounds like you've got plans. Tell us about your plans in these next few months. Yeah, I uh, have been approached over the last several months to uh, consider running for office. And, and as of about four months ago, there were about three different offices that people wanted me to run for. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure you can guess which ones. But uh, I am uh, announcing that I'm running for the Burley County Commission. And uh, I've set up a, a website. Uh, at moveburleyforward.com. Uh, people can go on there. And the interesting thing is that the, the rules from 2000, uh, 2020 are still in, a, in, in force, which means that 
anybody who wants to sign a petition at their home, scan it in and email it, it's still a valid petition for me. Really? For local office and for even for legislative races, uh, which I'm hoping makes my job easier over the next few months of, of you know, negative 30 degree temperatures <laughs> and all yeah. the things that we deal with. I know that there's a, a few candidates that are going door to door and I'm like, you know, you got, you're, you're, you're really hardcore there. Yeah. But How many uh, signatures do you need? Th uh, 300 is the minimum. 300, uh, okay. So four or 500 or so. Sure. I, and uh, I will get your signature here. I got brought the clipboard and everything. Happy to do that. Uh, and, you know, I've been involved with very heavily with local government now for about seven years. It started with my work uh, at the Bismarck city level regarding the TIF district and the way that the city was abusing that program, using it as a slush fund. Uh, I've been involved with the special assessment task force since 2017. Uh, I, I've uh, been serving on the Bismarck Renaissance Zone Authority since 2018, just started second term uh, just this last month. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of local in the weeds issues that regular people just don't have time for, don't understand. And, you know, we talk about all these big picture things with federal government, with, with governor, with legislature, but the bulk of the actual policy work, in, in my view, in the last 10 years, is actually at the local level. Because while there are fights, there's actual movement that can be made. And, you know, we, we've seen things at the local level regarding all these different policies and, and personalities that have, have come through. And uh, there, there's a distinct lack of, of big picture understanding of the way that state government works with with local government uh, the things that that both the county and the city have to deal with that are imposed on them by the legislature uh, a lot of them they have no say in the matter you know a lot of local budgets are are really not discretionary at all just like at the state level uh, you know when you're dealing with the the federal money very little of that is is really discretionary it, even though it, it looks like it might be in most cases, it's not. And there, there's a, a need at the local level to understand how all these things work together. And, and I've been lobbying at the legislative level now for uh, oh, 13 years. I, I believe my last session was my eighth session. Um, and, and so between that and the work that I've done at the local city level, I think that uh, uh, being able to kind of create a sort of a synergy of understanding of the different levels of government makes me uh, qualified for the county commission. Yeah. Wow, that's great. What? Uh, how many? How many seats are on the commission? How many seats are up for election? And who holds those seats that are up? There are five seats total. There are three seats up this time around, and the incumbents that are due up for re-election are Mark Armstrong, Jim Peluso, and uh, Jones. I, I forget her. Oh, Kathleen. First, Kathleen Jones. And, uh, and so it, it's unclear who all is running. It's still kind of up in the air. There's different rumors floating around. Uh, you know, we're, we're all kind of waiting for official statements to be made. But uh, there, there's uh, definitely some, some things to be done. Uh, the, the county commission's going to be looking at, in the near future, uh, expanding its home rule charter. Uh, 
I've, I've applied for that committee as well. Uh, the, there are some issues at the county level. A lot of them deal with property rights, basic property rights. Mm. Uh, things like people running their, uh, their, their snowmobiles in other people's ditches and messing up their driveways and very basic type of stuff uh, that, that need to be addressed. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I will say I certainly hope that someone like yourself might take Kathleen Jones's seat. Nothing personal. I always clarify it's nothing personal. But politics uh, in that area is absolutely antithetical to what I think is the best way to govern a county. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, interesting things on this on the county commission, um, and you know, the, the Burley County has been, I think, quite good mm -hmm. in keeping property taxes low and focusing on that type of issue. Uh, there have been some interesting things that have come up with regard to refugees. Do you see, if you're on that seat, any any fights that you might be willing to, you know, that hill to die on, as they say, the proverbial hill, anything that you can see in the near future? Well, you know, I, I think my philosophy is as well established as anybody who has never been elected to anything can be. But as I've learned in these various positions where I actually am at the table and have a vote, uh, it's not as cut and dry as people think. And at the county level, I don't think that there's a lot of hills to die on. Uh, I think that the man you know, managing the interaction between governments is the biggest thing that I see. Uh, there's a lot of communications issues between the city and the county when it comes to things like extraterritorial zoning, which is a, a whole topic of yes, its own. It you know, it, I, I consider it to be regulation without representation. Yep. Uh, and, and I think that the, the relationships that I've developed with the city commissioners and with city staff over the last few years uh, would, would put me in a good position to deal with those sort of situations. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, it's, it sounds uh, great. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, it's always a pleasure to work with you, um, no doubt about it. We'll have you on again. Lots of good topics we could keep going on. <laughs> Folks, we'll be back next time. No apologies.